You're listening to Cortez Radio, CKTZ, 89.5 FM. The following program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. It was originally broadcast on May 16, 2020. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Come from a blue planet light years away Where everything multiplies at an amazing rate Out here in the universe buying real estate Hope we haven't gotten here too late Many of you probably know Linda Solomon Wood as the editor-in-chief of the National Observer, but the award-winning investigative journalist lived on Cortez Island for five years after 9-11. Her brother, Joel Solomon, was the chairman of the board at Hollyhock for a quarter of a century. While she is currently in Vancouver, Linda returns every summer. I recently had a chance to interview her about her life and why, as the editor of a national publication, she decided to hire a reporter to cover Cortez and Quadra Islands. So what motivates you? What's your passion in this? God, that's a good question. I would say really that my biggest passion is people. I really love talking with people. I love hearing people's stories. I love the way journalism is a passport into really the interesting lives of other people and to stories. That's really what motivates me is just finding the next great story. The stories is what does it for me too. I can mm-hmm. be feeling, what am I doing this for? Kind of really depressed. And the story. <laughs> <laughs> Wham. <laughs> you just go ahead and do it anyways. Cause you get all excited. <laughs> Yeah, because it's true. It's so cool to hear, to really get inside other people's challenges and their successes and get you outside yourself. What's the first story you remember writing? Ooh, as a journalist? As a kid, I wrote short stories. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Chattanooga is a very interesting place. It certainly was when I was growing up there. It was a pretty small southern city. And the first story I really remember writing was about how we had just gone through mandatory school busing. There was enforced integration. I can't remember the exact details of it, but I remember that there was this, there would be this guy standing in front of the high school going, last call for the Ghetto Express. So it was a story about that guy and just that time was like from the point of view of 13 year old. That was my question. (laughs) When did you decide you were going to do this to make a living? Well, I started out as a journalist for a newspaper called the Tennessean and I had my first full-time job there when I was about 20. 21. Um, So that was when I thought about it when I was younger. And I did have a summer job as an intern at a newspaper in Greenfield, Massachusetts. And I started by writing obituaries and wedding 
notices and there in the basement of the Greenfield Recorder's offices. And then I was started out at Northwestern in journalism school. And I, I just kept going from there. And I identified with it very strongly. And I was motivated during the same time a lot of people of my age were from the Watergate hearings and Woodward and Bernstein and that this idea of the big things that journalism can do and that the ways that it can change society and change people's lives. What kind of circulation did the Tennessean have? That's an interesting question. Like, I was just looking at it recently and seeing how small it looks. It's still there. The Tennessean is still active. I follow it on Twitter because I love seeing what's going on in, in Tennessee. But I think at the time, I remember that a story on the front page supposedly reached a million people because they would count all of the, you know, every newspaper they would assume was being read by two or three people. So the numbers they used included all those people. Yeah. So different. So like scoring landing pieces on the front page was a really big deal. When I started out in journalism, there was the opportunity to just totally focus on your reporting and you didn't have a lot of, you didn't have any concerns about whether or not your publication was going to be publishing next year or next week. I don't remember there being cutbacks or layoffs or anything. I just remember a lot of hiring, a lot of people coming in, a lot of energy on training young reporters like I was, a lot of valuing, getting us out there, giving us big stories to try being successful with. And there was just, there was an infrastructure around things that was really great too. Like there were stories went through big legal reviews. The newspaper itself probably had its own lawyers full-time or else it just, that was just not an issue, the legal side. And I also just remember the building and how there was security when you came in and the receptionists and there was the copy desk and you were all in this big room. I want to skip ahead a couple of decades to when you were a freelancer. Why would you ever want to leave New York and come to Canada? Good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, that was funny. Not only did I come to Canada, I came to Cortez from New York City. So that was a big change. But I did it right after 9-11. And I came because pregnant with my second son. I was very pregnant. And I really wanted to get out of the really super toxic, polluted environment that uh, we found ourselves in right after 9-11. So I came to Cortez, and I really didn't expect it to be a lifetime decision. But that's how things turned out. And I lived on Cortez Island for five years. So while I was on Cortez, I was, I think the, the Huffington Post was emerging, and Arianna Huffington was it was very much about her and her Rolodex, and she was creating this thing online. And I saw that, and I just was watching it, and I thought, well, okay, I know I don't have Arianna Huffington's Rolodex, but wow, like, I had always wanted to have my own newspaper. 
<laughs> and I'm laughing because back in the day, as my son Lev says, he's 18, back in the day, to have your own newspaper wasn't like you had to be so wealthy to even think about that. So that was just completely out of reach. But with the internet, it wasn't out of reach anymore. So it was kind of unconscious. It wasn't like I thought, oh, I've always wanted to have my own newspaper. Let me start this. But when I look back, I realize that over the years, these things had been like seeds and then they'd been like unrequited love. They were there and they wanted to be expressed. And then the internet made it possible. And so I went into it with this idea that in retrospect was very wrong, that all the ad revenue from print was going to pour onto, right? Oh, yeah. I did that one. And I remember there was this article in The Atlantic written by one of the big key people from Google. And they were predicting that was going to happen. And because of that article, that gave me confidence that this is a risk. I knew I was taking a risk, but it's going to work out. And so I started the Vancouver Observer. And an interesting note about the Vancouver Observer, another Cortez Island piece of trivia, (laughs) is that when I moved to Cortez from New York City in 2001, I was on the ferry going over to Cortez and I ran into Libya. I ran into somebody who at that time owned one of the big properties that you can only get to by boat. Um, Gifford, the Giffords. I ran into the Giffords. And I think they've left Cortez, but they were there for a number of years. And she said, Oh my God, I was there with Lev, who, and he was a baby. Oh, no, I was pregnant with him. I was pregnant with my second son. And I had Eli, who was like four. And they said, Oh, you're coming to Cortez. Wow, that's so great. You've got to meet Ruth Ozeki. She's a novelist and she lives here. And you've got to meet her right away because you're both writers. But I didn't meet Ruth for a while. <laughs> I didn't meet her for a while, but we finally met one time. And we became really good friends and we started writing together and doing all this stuff together. But when I got back to Vancouver, Ruth and I sat down together and we went over, we looked at URLs that were available and there was like not even then that was like 2006, there was very little available, but we came upon the Vancouver observer. And because we were both from New York, we got really excited about it because the New York observer. And so I got the Vancouver observer. So Ruth helped me name the Vancouver Observer. How long did it take until it was profitable? By profitable, I mean at least making a living. Yeah. Well, the Vancouver Observer became profitable. I mean, literally profitable after. Well, okay. It really didn't officially launch until 2009. I was kind of just messing around on the software that the amazing and wonderful Barry Saxifrage from Cortez Island, (laughs) he had created the Tideline software, right? And Barry 
he just gave it away to community organizations and community news sites. So he gave it to me and he helped me figure it out. And so I had the net, this blog, which was called Vancouver Observer, and it didn't make any money hardly at all for years, for like three years. But as we came up to the Olympics in 2010, I got an offer. Somebody called me and offered to buy it. And I was like, oh my God, this has value. And at that point, I decided I took some own, some of my own money. It was like $10,000. And I got a designer from Emily Carr and a developer. And we relaunched on Drupal software, which won't mean a lot to anybody, but to you computer nerds that are out there, to you technology lovers, Drupal means a lot. And it's a great publishing platform. And Barry's was great too, but this was just a, an, another step. And we relaunched in time for the Olympics. And that was when we started to generate money. And I would say within a couple of years, we were doing crowdfunding campaigns and generating enough money from that to pay a few people and to get a lot more really powerful reporting done. We did the Tar Sands Reporting Project and we did reports from the Energy Battlegrounds. And we started to make money from advertising towards 2012, 2013, and 14. There was real money being made from ads. And then Facebook came in and got on the ground and started working with local businesses. And that was the end of the advertising thing. And that was right when I launched National Observer on the idea that ads were history, that we weren't going to make money at all that way. And that what had worked for me was crowdfunding. And so National Observer, the whole design of it, everything was about going to readers to ask for funding. And quickly, within a year, that transitioned into these crowdfunding campaigns are too exhausting. Anybody, any of you who've done them, you've probably done them, Roy, no. <laughs> well, I can tell you, it's like a month of just sheer terror and hell and like desperate. Oh my God, got to get this goal. And if you don't get any of the money and it's really crazy and you have to go ask everybody for money. And I so hated it in the beginning, but I started to turn a corner when I started to see it really wasn't about me. That whole thing of, oh, I'm asking for money. That feels terrible. But as I started to see, it was really about people really cared about these issues. Like they cared about like the first crowdfunding campaign was really built around having the funds to tell stories about the Enbridge Pipeline project, the proposed Enbridge Pipeline project that a lot of people had very strong feelings about. And there were big stories there that just weren't being told. It was being told as a business story by most of the media. So we just, it started, it was apparent to me that was too exhausting. And I got to the point where I was like, what if people, either if our journalism is not good enough for people to want to pay for it, I can't keep doing this. This is just a vanity project. It's a fool's errand and I can't do it. So we, at that point, we said, let's take a risk. Let's put up a paywall. And we did. And it became, it was very successful. What is a paywall? 
a paywall is that thing that makes you, when you've read your third article on the New York Times or the Washington Post, they go, give us your credit card or you can't read anymore. Oh, okay. And people said, well, how can you do that? Because no, you're small. Like people don't even know about you yet. And I was just like, I know that's true, but we can't do this for free. Journalists have to be paid salaries. I have to be paid. Like we can't just go on without a clear revenue stream. Give me an example of a successful campaign. I consider them all successful because we got to the goal. And each one of those campaigns that we have done, and we continue to do them even once we had, we just did them in a different way with the paywall. Like it became more of a campaign to bring on subscribers rather than just to say, please give us money. It became, if you subscribe, it's going to empower us to be able to do this reporting. And the last one we did was called the Election Integrity Reporting Project. And we did that probably around a year ago was when we were doing it in earnest on the site, raising money. And I think in a month we raised like 80 or $90,000. And we also got more money that came in just from individual readers offline who really cared about it and were really worried. I think people a year ago were really worried about how disinformation was going to affect the Canadian election. And it was also the rise of hate and like Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and all the stuff that was going on back then that seems like another world now. It just seems so long ago. But it allowed us to hire two dedicated reporters to cover that. And I'm really proud of the work we did. So I consider that very successful. We're still working on a big report that we're going to be putting out this spring about the impact of that. And that's a big part of these campaigns. It's not just ending it after the money comes in, but really being careful to track all the impact that you've had, track what you've been able to create with people's money, and then go back to them and thank them and show them what the impact of their donation was. Are you working seven days a week? For years I did. Years and years. Now, not so much. Now I have such good people working with me that I really don't have to. I am pretty addicted to it. Like, it's so stimulating and pretty fulfilling. So I do turn to it a lot, but I'm lucky. God, how can we even talk about normally for the last six weeks? I'm just glad that I'm working, to tell you the truth. And I'm glad that I've been able to keep my staff employed. Is COVID a challenge for the National Observer? Yeah. We easily could have just gone right out of business. It's just things became so uncertain and different income we had counted on just wasn't going to be there anymore. Stuff like that. So, yeah, for sure. And in the last six weeks... 50 community newspapers have gone under and 2,300 journalists have lost their jobs. So I've been very focused on keeping things stable. My company's not very big. There's 10 full-time people, but that's not nothing. So 
just keeping it stable and being sure that everybody keeps their job. That's been a lot of work. You've also come back to communities. Why did you choose to apply for a grant for Cortez and Quadra? And I noticed that's not the only place you did it for. How many communities have you applied for? Well, we've applied for a few more now. They just opened it up again for, I think they're going to be more dedicated on COVID. But I'm going to answer your question about Cortez first. So the federal government a year ago, last March, passed new legislation that put into the budget $50 million to be dispersed over five years. I really want to check that number. I'm just like not totally sure, but I think that's what it was. It was, and it was all to go to local journalism. So it was to address news deserts and areas of news poverty in Canada. And they, it was to be dispersed by News Media Canada. So they're administering it. And so all over Canada, organizations applied for, the, for these grants. And part of the criteria was <clears throat> that you had to already be established as a news organization. So when I saw that, like so many things, I saw it and then I didn't do anything about it. And then it was the last minute. And I thought, for me, the small community and community that I know about and that I care about and is Cortez. And I also know a little bit about Quadra because I married a man, David Wood, who has some ties to Quadra. But more than anything else, I've always felt like these areas are so rich in stories amazing stories like I felt like if I just had a year and I could go and spend a year on Cortez and just write about I don't know like one day I was just walking down the road and Andrea Block happened to be walking there too and she told me she was headed towards Manson's Landing Manson's Lagoon and all the way along the way she was picking up trash and we got into this long conversation about why she was doing it and about her, all of her ideas about the environment and about waste. And I think I'm telling you that story because I really feel like there is a level of sophistication and intelligence on these islands where people have come to from lots of other places for many good reasons. And that is just, the fodder for endless amazing stories. And so that's why I've applied for this area because it's someplace I know, it's someplace I love. And of course, I was a little worried that people are very sensitive about their privacy on Cortez. I don't know if that's as true on Quadra, but I think people go to Cortez sometimes because they really do want to be off the grid. They don't want to be noticed. And so it was really important to us that we find the right reporter who really understands island culture. And so Rochelle Baker, who you know, because you've worked with her, really just, we were so happy that she applied because she also had the journalistic experience that these grants required us to come forward with 
but she clearly understood the sensitivities, the realities of island living, and love to have more feedback on it from people, but I really feel like she's done a great job. And we've got an amazing response about her work because she manages to tell stories, I think, without being invasive and in reflecting what it is that person or that organization really wants to say about themselves. So I think she brings a critical look, but not in a harsh way in an empathetic way. So that's why I chose Cortez and our managing editor, Lori Few, is from Saskatchewan. So she knew about LaRange, which was a place I had literally never heard of before. <laughs> but we applied for LaRange as well and Lori did an amazing application. And we won that one too. And so we have an amazing reporter there as well. And I just think that what happens in rural and remote Canada is fascinating and it's epic. People are interested all over the world. Like one of Rochelle's stories about goats on Quadra was picked up and republished in Mother Jones because we're part of something called the Climate Desk. And so we share stories with The Guardian, with Mother Jones, with the Nation, Grist, other publications that are really focused on climate change like we are. And it was just wonderful to see a story from Quadra Island about something quirky and particular of interest to people everywhere. Sometimes it's really the detail and the particular that is universal. Is there anything you would like to add? <laughs> What I would like to add, I look forward to meeting you in person this summer. I hope that we can all meet in person and that everybody stays well and that everybody reads National Observer and realizes that Vancouver Observer came first and National Observer is just a different iteration. And I hope that you will all read it and love it and write me when you don't or when you do. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Roy. You've been listening to an interview with Linda Solomon Wood, whose Cortez connection goes back for close to a quarter of a century. This story was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye.